Well, good morning again, and happy Mother's Day to all of you mothers, to all of you who have shown love, compassion, and protection to another. We thank God for you. And I'll be honest with you, um, I have a great mom and a great dad, and I love them so much. Um, I also have had several women in my life that were not my mothers that had a huge impact in my life. And to everybody, every woman who's invested in somebody else. We wish you happy Mother's Day. We find ourselves in the midst of a difficult season right now. Many of us have uh, found this time to be challenging, to be cooped in our, up in our house with our family day after day after day after day. And you may have found that your patience has Thinned, uh, and that may have led to some drama in your life. Maybe, maybe just a little bit. And I know some drama in our household has revolved around grocery shopping. So, what I'd love for you to do right now is in the comment section, put where you like to grocery shop, uh, where you like to shop, whether it be um, Aldi's or Ingalls or uh, Kroger or Crozier, as I like to call it. Make it a little fancier than what it is, Crozier. Uh, go ahead and put in the comment section where you like to shop. In our household, in the Lauk's household, we, we tend to go to Aldi's. That's our, that's our one-stop shop, typically. And I'll admit that over the course of Rachel and I's soon-to-be 10 years of marriage, that I've only gone to the grocery store to shop for the family a handful of times, and during this whole pandemic, I have taken on the responsibility of going to the grocery store for my family, so I'd put on the gloves, and I'd put on the mask, and and I would go not knowing what to get, and uh, Rachel, my wonderful wife, she'd make me me up a grocery list, and I tell you what, um, you want to talk about drama, you want to talk about some tension in the Lauk's household is when I come home from the grocery store. And, uh, you know, the first time I went, I went to the wrong grocery store, went to Publix, and then I, I learned my lesson to go, to go back to Aldi's. And then, yeah, I'm guessing some of you have experienced that same thing of maybe the person who generally doesn't go grocery shopping is going grocery shopping and heaven forbid you get the wrong brand of whatever or the wrong amount of whatever, but I am learning my lesson and adjusting from there. But some drama in our households, right? Well, the text that we're looking at today, you want to talk about drama. I think it is a fine case of it here. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 21. We're going to start in verse 8, but go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 21. And if you don't have a physical Bible, don't be ashamed of that. What we'd love for you to do is in the comment section, in all capitals, type in Bible, and we will do what we can to get you a physical Bible, because there's something special about having a physical Bible there in your household to turn to and to know what it says, and that's an amazing thing. So go ahead and put that in the comment section. Uh, in all capitals, Bible, if you have that. But turn with me to Genesis chapter 21. We're going to start in verse 8. And before we do, I want to give you a little context to this passage before we dive in. All right? So we have a few characters in this story in Genesis chapter 21. 
but if we go back before this, the, their whole story starts in Genesis chapter 12. And there's a few name changes that take place uh, throughout all, all this, but I'm just going to refer to these two people as Abraham and Sarah. So in Genesis chapter 12, God promises to Abraham, he says, hey, I'm going to make you a great nation and I'm going to give you a land. A few chapters later is that God says to Abraham, you are going to have a child, you will have a son because he had no kids at that part in the story. Well, we see in Genesis chapter 16 that Sarah, Abraham's wife, she is unfortunately not able to have children. So she takes this whole situation of giving Abraham an an heir of someone to inherit everything. She takes the whole situation into her hands and she says to Abraham, take my Egyptian servant named Hagar as a wife. Maybe she will be able to give you a son. And Abraham says, oh, okay. He rolls with it. Hagar becomes pregnant with Abraham's child and believe it or not, This creates some drama in the family. Ishmael is born. That's the son of Hagar. Abraham is the cool, spry age of 86 when Ishmael is born. I tell you what, I am 36, and my kids exhaust me to no end. I cannot imagine what it would be like to have kids 50 years from now. Side note, we keep on going. Genesis chapter 18, God says to Abraham, no, Ishmael is not gonna, he's not the one I promised you. Sarah, your first wife, she is gonna have a son. Abraham falls on his face and laughs. That's important. And Sarah overhears God says this. She also laughs. And because at this time, Sarah is about 90 years old. And yeah. And so Genesis chapter one, sure enough, God's promises is fulfilled. Sarah becomes pregnant and gives birth to a son named Isaac, which literally in Hebrew means he laughs, and Abraham is a hundred years old. So that's some, that's like all the drama that has led up to this event that we see here in Genesis chapter 21, starting in verse 8. So turn there with me, Genesis chapter 21, starting in verse 8. The boy, referring to Isaac, the boy grew and stopped nursing. On the day he stopped nursing, Abraham prepared a huge banquet. Sarah saw Hagar's son, Ishmael, laughing, the one Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham. So she said to Abraham, send the servant away with her son. The servant's son won't share the inheritance with my son, Isaac. This upset Abraham terribly because the boy was his son. God said to Abraham, don't be upset about the boy and your servant. Do everything Sarah tells you to do, because your descendants will be traced through Isaac. But I will make of your servant's son a great nation too, because he is also your descendant. Abraham got up early in the morning, took some bread and a flask of water, and gave it to Hagar. He put the boy in her shoulder sling and sent her away. She left and wandered through the desert near Beersheba. Finally, the water in the flask ran out, and she put the boy down under one of the desert shrubs. 
She walked away from him about as far as a bow shot and sat down, telling herself, I can't bear to see the boy die. She sat at a distance, cried out in grief, and wept. God heard the boy's cries, and God's messenger called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, Hagar, what's wrong? Don't be afraid. God has heard the boy's cries over there. Get up, pick up the boy, and take him by the hand, because I will make of him a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well. She went over, filled the water flask, and gave the boy a drink. God remained with the boy. He grew up, lived in the desert, and become, became an expert archer. He lived in the Paran Desert, and his mother found him an Egyptian wife. The word of God for the people of God. There's two takeaways I want to focus on this text. There's a lot that we can unpack from here, but there's, and a lot of things that we can learn, but there's two things I want to focus on from this text, two takeaways. The first is this. Sometimes the difficult situations we find ourselves in are a product of our own making. Sometimes they are not, but often it's a combination of both. When we look at Sarah, Sarah, outside of her control, she is not able to have a child. That is not her fault. But then she decides, and Sarah here in the situation, she's, she's about in the 90% wrong and 10% right category, 90% unjustified interactions and like 10% justified interactions, if you want to put it that way. She is unable to have a child, not her fault. So she decides to have, essentially, for Abraham to have a, a surrogate through Hagar. And once Hagar becomes pregnant, her status in the dynamics of the family is increased. And because of that, Sarah feels disrespected by Hagar. But then, when Sarah becomes pregnant with Isaac, she wants her past decisions to be removed. She doesn't want a reminder of that at all. So she then acts out. She wants Hagar and Ishmael removed, talks to Abraham about it to have them removed. And here's, here's some of the irony in the midst of it that Sarah Sarah's missing. Remember from the, from the text that when God told Abraham that he was going to have a child, Abraham laughed about it. Sarah overheard it, and she laughed about it. Because of that dynamic, when that promise was fulfilled and Sarah had a child, they literally named their kid, he laughs, Isaac, right? And then when Sarah sees Ishmael laughing at her son or about her son, she wants them dismissed, Right? It's so easy for us to find the faults in others, but not in ourselves. And yes, I know that maybe Ishmael had a mocking tone in the midst of his laughter. Paul references it in one of his letters. Uh, maybe that was the case. But it's the same Hebrew word that's used there as what Abraham and Isaac, uh, Abraham and Sarah did. And if you, if you do the math, we see that uh, Ishmael, at that time, when, when Isaac was born, Ishmael was about 14 years of age. Because whenever each of the kids are born, they, they list there in the text of when, what Abraham's age was, right? And so if you add on the time that it took for Isaac to be weaned, who knew? It doesn't say how long that took. Maybe Ishmael was 14, maybe he was 15, maybe he was 16. He wasn't, an, he wasn't, he was essentially still 
just a kid. And so um, I don't know about you, but I know in my teenage years, I did some knucklehead things. Uh, but from that one act we see there, she wants him gone. Sometimes the difficult situations we find ourselves in are a product of our own making. We look at Hagar here, who's about 90% a victim in the midst of all this, right? She is simply a household servant that serves Sarah. She then, in turn, because of Sarah's situation, becomes a wife of Abraham. She is blessed with a child, um, but because those dynamics have changed, she is not quite as respectful to Sarah as what she was in the past, and because of that is, is forced and kicked out to leave with her son. Sometimes the difficult situations we find ourselves in are not always a product of our own making, but often it's a combination of both. So think of your, your current situation right now. Over the last several weeks, you have had to shelter in place. And I feel that in this time, it's brought to the surface problems that were there all along. If you had a problem with the way you managed your finances before this, if you had a problem with the way you communicated with your family, the, commun- the way you communicated with your spouse, the amount of time that you spent on work, the way you eat your food and cared for your, care for your body, uh, it's brought to the surface a lot of problems that were there all along. We've just had to sit with them and kind of deal with it. What issues do you need to acknowledge right now in your own household and address? Because you can't always control what happens to you, but you can control how you respond to it. So what should we do when we find ourselves in a difficult situation? So the first thing, number one, is give the whole situation up to God. So yes, we might be 90% in the wrong uh, with this whole situation, or we might be 90% the victim of it. But no matter where we're at, give the whole situation up to God. Cast your cares Upon God, because oftentimes we we create these difficult situations for ourselves, but we they end up being so complex that we can't get ourselves out of it. So give the whole situation up to God. Number two is take responsibility for your part. Own up to your part of the situation. You might have started some bad habits years ago that have led up to this. You might have. Um, done some wrong things, whatever it might be, but take responsibility for your part. If there's a part in there, take your responsibility for it. Number three is work on what you can control. And the last is trust in God to work on what you cannot control. I think those are a great process for what we do when we find ourselves in a difficult situation. Give the whole situation up to God. Take responsibility for your part. Work on what you can control and trust in God to work on what you cannot control. I think the second big takeaway from this text is this, and this one's a painful one, so get ready for it. Our children often have to live with the consequences of our actions. Ishmael did not decide who his mother or father were. Ishmael did not choose the situation he was born into. 
Ishmael did not choose to get kicked out of the only home he had ever known. Ishmael did not decide to become a fatherless son. But he had to live with the consequences of his parents' actions. God has heard the cries, and God is calling us to comfort them. We look at this story that we read in Genesis chapter 1 of Hagar leaves. She's wandering around in the desert. She is kicked out of the house with some water and some bread. And when that runs out, she separates her son from her so she doesn't have to watch him from dying. She cries out to God. The boy cries out to God, and God answers her. And he answers her in a really tangible way. What he does is he encourages her, and then also, the text says, opened her eyes and to see a well not that far in the distance. All right? A well. A very tangible, kind of practical thing. And here's my, here's my challenge to you. If you, if I could have you do one thing in response to this message today, it'd be this. To be an involved, caring, and loving person in the life of someone who is not your child. There are some families that they just need a little help. Not this big, dramatic thing, but just a little help. All Hagar needed at that moment was to refill her flask, to be encouraged, to refill her water, to be encouraged, and then she was able to move on. Something small, very basic, very tangible. If I could have you do one thing in response to the message, it'd be this, to be an involved, caring, and loving person in the life of someone who is not your child. Who has God placed in your life that you have influence over? And how can you be an involved, caring, and loving person in their life? There's this youth guru named Chap Clark. He's an awesome guy. And he wrote about the order of influence in a student's life. We have come to this belief or this, this common idea that parents no longer have influence over their kids, that aunts and uncles and coaches don't have any influence over their kids anymore, but it's, it's just the media. The media is, is what is controlling and influencing our kids. And he writes about this. The number one influence, the primary influence in a teen's life, number one is the parent. Number one. Number two, the second tier of an influence is an involved, caring, and loving non-parental person. So a relative, a coach, an aunt, an uncle, um, a youth leader, someone who's not their parents. And the third tier is their peers. And then the fourth is influence of media. But here's the thing. Those lower levels of influence move up when the top influences are removed. So a parent can only be, no longer be a primary influence in the life of a teen when the parent decides to check out. And then everything gets moved up. Peers and media only have influence in the life of a student, in the life of a kid, when those other two tiers are removed. Who has God placed in your life that you have influence over? How can you be an involved, caring, and loving person in their life? I want to read to you a story about two followers of Jesus who did nothing wrong. This is where the, one of the rare instances where something terrible happened in their life. They found themselves in a terrible situation, 
but they responded to it in an amazing way. So listen to this. There once was a mother named Sue. Her husband's name was Bruce, and together they had three lovely daughters and one son. The Berkeys were fully committed in their discipleship of Jesus and embodied the life that he calls his followers to. They were very involved in their church, and so were their children. The children attended Sunday school, youth activities, and were involved in the youth choir. Life was not always easy for Bruce and Sue, for the Berkeys, but with their faith in God as their foundation, they endured. Well, one day, that faith would come to be challenged. One day, their son was involved in a terrible car accident, and on that day, the Berkeys unfortunately lost their only son. Years later, their youngest daughter became interested in one of the new boys who began attending their church. This boy was a part of a group of three boys who were freshmen in high school who started coming to the church in youth events. The boys had more energy than most. They were loud at times and tended to be disruptive. Some of them came from broken homes. Two of the boys were football players, and they had the egos to go along with it. This boy that was interested in their daughter was not Bruce and Sue's ideal choice for their daughter to date, but they made an intentional effort to keep their hearts open to him. The youngest Berkey daughter was just 15, and they had a house rule that none of the girls could date anyone until they were 16. Sue and Bruce said it was all right if the boy wanted to come over to their house under their supervision, but they could not go out alone on a date. This boy came over and visited a few times to spend time with their daughter, but more often than not, he would bring along his other two guy friends with him to hang out with the Berkey family. Bruce had quite the man cave with a big screen TV, a pool table, and more Dan Marino memorabilia than you could imagine. The boys loved watching football with Bruce and getting beat by him in pool. And Sue, she loved to cook. And well, the boys, they loved to eat. And whenever they left the Berkey's house, Sue would give each of them a dozen chocolate chip cookies. The Berkey's daughter and the boy were only together for a few months. Relationally, they went their own separate ways, but the three boys continued to come over to the Berkey's house almost every week, and Bruce and Sue continued to pour out into their lives. These three boys grew up, got married, and would then bring their families over to Berkey's for a Sunday lunch now and then. Bruce and Sue lost a son quite tragically. But because their hearts were open to the will of God, God brought three sons into their lives that needed love and direction. I was one of those three sons. And the other two boys are still my best friends to today. Surprisingly enough, we are all three working as pastors. Over 20 years later, we still go over to the Berkeys with our families when we are in town. The investment that the Berkeys made into my life, into all of our lives, was transformative. 
and that investment would not have been made if Bruce and Sue decided to keep their ears closed to God and to others. I was a knucklehead when I was younger. I have a great mom and a dad, but I'll be honest with you, I needed another one. I needed an additional set of parents in my life. I needed an involved, caring, and loving non-parental person in my life. God has heard the cries, and God is calling us to comfort them. Who has God placed in your life that you have influence over? Now can you be an involved, caring, and loving person in their life? Please bow your heads and pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for being the God who hears all of our cries, for hearing the cry of the mother, the cry of the father, the cry of the child, the grandmother, the grandfather, the aunt, the uncle, the friend, the neighbor. God, help us to have ears to hear their cries as well. Move us into action to bring love, comfort, and help to those in need. May we as a church be obedient to the calling you have placed upon us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.